0: And I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4. And uh, I'd like us to <coughs> to read the whole chapter. Ooh, too many cables here. So let's hear God's word again to us. This is the st- passage we're going to study today. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It is desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his his wife, and she conceived and bore bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adab or Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, he was the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge, revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. So Seth, also a son, was born, and he called his name uh, Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, we've seen in in chapter 3, in recent weeks, how sin first came about uh, in in the world when Adam and Eve ate, ate the forbidden fruit. And we've uh, noted how that was a, a pivotal moment in human history. Uh, but here's the thing: I, I wonder if, if there are some people who who still harbour this idea, they might think, well, you know, how is it that um, you know such a small thing can be so pivotal to the whole of human history? I mean, how can eating a fruit? be so bad. And it's only a fruit, isn't it? Who cares? Uh, we eat fruit every day, or at least we should. Uh, what's what's the problem here? But of course, to ask the question is to show how, how we miss the essential point of that event. It is that in eating this fruit, mankind puts to one side God's word, and so it put God himself to one side. It was an act of rebellion against God. And here's mankind saying, I can do as, as I desire. Whatever God has said, I will do what I want to do, and I'll do it uh, without really thinking about him. And so you, mankind has chosen to ignore God. And that's the attitude that's the real tragedy in the eating of the fruit. Because it resulted in alienation of mankind from God. And that gap that is now formed between man and God can no longer be bridged simply by being obedient. And that's the whole point of the uh, uh, the uh, Adam and Eve being cast out of the Garden of Eden, and uh, uh, that guard of cherubim being set at the gates at the eastern side, preventing anybody getting to the Tree of Life. That the way to the Tree of Life is lost through obedience, and Adam and Eve are cast out and separated uh, from God. Now, as we come to this chapter. Chapter 4, we see how the sin that's now in the human heart propagates in a couple of ways. One way is that it propagates down the generations. And we'll see that uh, as, uh, as Cain is uh, affected and his family subsequently is affected. But the other way is simply the sheer intensity of the spread of sin within Cain himself, within mankind himself... Because Adam, uh, Cain is, is not simply guilty of eating a fruit now, but he is. What we find here is welling up within, within Cain are all the fountains of anger and malice and envy and deceit that result in the murder of his brother Abel. And what we see is how the alienation from God that began in chapter 3, now spreads to alienation between men and women, boys and girls, people in society, families, relationships, as well as causing the greatest eruptions of, of sinfulness in the human heart uh, within each individual. And it's a, it's a miserable story. But there are some, a couple of rays of light coming uh, from a couple of places. And I'll come to those later, but I'd just mention what they are. Uh, one is that the first ray of light here is that God is still communicating with mankind. And it's notable that though, though man has been banished from the Garden of Eden, there is still a relationship of worship going on. And that God seems to be involved in that worship and indeed either confronting bad worship or approving of good worship. And so that, in a sense, hope begins to hold out some hope for mankind. And then the other ray of hope comes from how Eve expresses her trust in this God. So in verse 1... I have produced a man with the help of God, of the Lord. And then in verse 25 again, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. But you see the centrality of her th- in her thinking of, of God being involved in the production of her children. And so we'll look at that more at the end. But for now... It's very important that we walk through this event with Cain and Abel and, and examine what is going on in Cain's heart. So four headings about sin and its manifestation, and, and then a final heading, thinking about the hope of the believer. So here's the first heading about sin. Uh, and let's just think generally now about where uh, temptation comes from. This is a general picture uh, of what the Bible teaches about, about this. In chapter 3, we saw how, how it came about that Eve was first tempted into taking the fruit, and then Adam followed. A bit of a worse was Adam, he just sort of stood there and watched and then kind of joined in, even though he was given the command. And we saw one of the ways that temptation comes uh, is through the serpent. And, of course, behind the serpent is the devil who speaks in the serpent. And so what, that's one way that temptation comes, through the voice of the powers of evil that are constantly feeding us lies. Uh, that's true for us today. That, that, that Satan is at his work, twisting and turning, uh, twisting the word of God, uh, causing us to doubt what God has said, causing us to misremember, perhaps latch onto the things that He never said, uh, su- suggesting to us and whispering in our ear that if we just disobey God, there are going to be there are no consequences. All of that was happening in chapter three. And this is a, a constant whisper that's in the ears of men and women today. Constantly whispering in our ear, just do this, just do that, just do that. Just doubt God, don't pay attention to him. Uh, there'll be no consequences, don't worry about it. Just carry on, carry on in that sin, keep doing it. And that's the devil at work. And some of us face this every day. We have this little voice in our ears saying, just ignore God, just ignore Don't care about him. You have a right to ignore him. So that's one way the devil speaks into our ears. But the Bible presents two other ways that temptation comes to us. One of the temptations is, is the world around us. The world... The people in it, the things in it, society, friendships, peer pressure, common expectations, all of these things speak to us. The world constantly is speaking to us. And very little of the world is concerned about faithfulness to God, faithfulness to the Word of God. And so the world constantly is shouting at us and offering us alternative messages. And then the third source of temptation, so we've got the devil, the world, and the third source of temptation is our own flesh, our own desires, that which is true within us. In one sense, it's still, that's still part of the world we inhabit because we're in the world. John, the apostle, puts it like this, 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the flesh speaks to us, our desires well up within us, our sinful desires well up within us. So we have these three sources of temptation, the devil, the world, the flesh. And all of these things are at work in our lives. Now it's these two other sources of temptation, uh, the flesh and the world, that we see arising in this chapter. We see the temptation of the flesh at work in Cain, resulting in the murder of his brother Abel. But we also see it developing in subsequent generations, a spread of violence and exalting, in the words of Lamech, which we'll come to later. So that's the first thing, the sources of temptation that we face. But here's the second thing, and now we get to look at the uh, the passage. Sin hides behind appearances. Sin hides behind appearances. So here we have the the birth of Cain and Abel, and they're de- they're described for us, and so too is described the the kind of work that they do. Uh, Abel develops a pastoral lifestyle, keeping sheep, looking after flocks. And Cain is a worker of the grounds, agriculture, uh, pursuing agriculture. And it's interesting that for all the consequences of chapter 3, life is still marked by our acts of worship in Cain and Abel. So Cain and Abel bring these offerings to the Lord. Cain brings the fruit of the grounds and his labor, and Abel brings the first-born of his flock, the, the fruit of his labour. And it should be said at this point that there's, there's actually nothing said in the text about the acceptability of these two different offerings in themselves. As far as we're concerned, it's a perfectly reasonable thing that whatever you do in life, you devote part of what you do to the Lord. That's why uh, our offering, wh- whatever you do in life, you, know, you bring an offering to the Lord, don't you? You bring a proportion of it to the Lord. And that's what we see here. We don't see anything suggesting that so there's a difference between them. But for some reason, in verses 4 and 5, God has regard for Abel's sacrifice, but not for Cain's sacrifice. Why? Why is there the difference at this point? Well, a great deal has been written about this. And some authors have tried to suggest that the nature of the offering is significant. Animal sacrifice is more acceptable than grain offerings. Uh, the trouble is that in the, Moses, the books of Moses, grain offerings have a place in the worship of God. Alongside animal offerings. Look at the book of Leviticus, you'll see it. So it's not immediately clear that grain offerings by in of themselves are unacceptable. And any idea that animal sacrifice is more significant seems to me at this point to be eisegesis. Uh, you read into the text what you want to be there. So like, wh- how do we resolve this? What's, what's wrong with the, the, the offering of Cain? Well, I think there's another reason for it. I think that what makes this unacceptable... Cain's offering, unacceptable, is what cannot be seen. But only God can see it. You see, it's not about the offering itself. But it's about the manner in which the offering is brought to God. Actually, what's in view to God, and not to outward appearances... Is whether or not there is an attitude of faith and trust. And I think this becomes clear when you begin to read the New Testament uh, understanding of what Abel was doing. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, uh, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And uh, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see, the big difference between Abel's offering and Cain's offering is that Abel came in faith and offered in faith and trust and repentance. But Cain didn't. He just made the offering. He just went through the motion of making the offering. And to God, they are radically different things. And that's a vital truth for us to understand today. I wonder how many people, I'm talking generally here, I wonder how many people come to worship on a Sunday, supposedly to offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God. But in their heart of hearts, the complete opposite is happening. That there's no humbling of oneself before God. There's no coming in uh, attitude of repentance and true trust. There's no particular desire to get right with God. But presuming that my action and my turning up on a Sunday morning is in itself an acceptable thing to God. See, God sees beyond the outward appearances and sin hides in the hidden appearance what's hidden from appearances and it's this God that sees he sees through the external aspects of our behaviour to what we're like in our hearts he can see what's there he knows whether you come in faith today he knows whether you're repentant for sins or whether you're simply trying to cover up he knows it all and he knows if your offering is acceptable, offered in faith and trust. And he loves people who come in faith and trust. He sees past all the sinfulness that taints everything we do. And he loves it. And he accepts you and I as righteous when we come to him in faith. This is our God. Now, some people might feel a bit angry at their being bothered that if they come to worship God, then somehow it might not be acceptable to God. They might feel angry at the suggestion of that. And I wonder if there's anybody here this morning who thinks that. Well, beware. You know, Cain was angry, and his face fell. And for Cain, there's no humbling of himself before God. And asking what he needs to do. He just gets angry with God. But here's the amazing thing that happens. God could just let him stew in his anger. But he didn't. God came to him and he sought to reason with him about his sin. And he gives Cain encouragement. He says, you know, if you, if you come, if you do well, and I think it just means come in faith, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He's trying to give him encouragement. But then he gives a warning as well. You know, sin is crouching at your door. It's like a lion waiting to pounce and take you, but you need to rule over it, Cain. You need to rule over it, you need to resist temptation, resist your anger, indeed repent and come in faith. So an encouragement and a warning to Cain. How gracious is God that he does this? And how many people have turned away the, the goodness and the grace of God because they believe they have a right to the access of God, a right to his blessing, a right to fellowship with God and his people? only to find that these things are not forthcoming because they've hung on to the sins of their hearts and the pride of their hearts, believing they have a right to be angry. Sin hides under the surface and is hidden from view. But well, here's the third thing. Anger gives, uh, anger gives way to murder. <laughs> Those encouragements. There's this appalling outcome that uh, Cain... Speaks to his brother or talks about it to his brother. And you'll notice a sequence of events here that begins with bad worship, that results in anger, and culminates in, in murder. You see, the origins of this terrible sin are actually spiritual but to do with your relationship to God and that's true of any sin it can all be traced back to the kind of relationship you have with God and it's from this that things begin to go badly wrong and that sin is crouching like a wild beast like a lion and Cain cannot control it he does not want to and he rises up and kills his brother and so God comes to him with this question that, you know, God knows the answer to. Where's your brother? And notice that in Cain there is no, re- there's no remorse, no regret, no repentance. You can see it from his reply. He says, well, I don't know. That's a lie. He knows exactly where he, where the blood of his brother is. He's lying in a pool of blood somewhere. He's left him there. He knows exactly where he is. And then he gives this kind of somewhat cynical and aggressive answer to God. Am I my brother's keeper? Of course, God knows exactly what's happened. In fact, as he eloquently puts it, your blood, brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I've seen exactly what you've done. And no matter how you try to cover it up and lie and plead ignorance, I know what you've done. And there is always evidence to God of your sin. It always comes before God. Sin always comes before him. And what God does with Cain is he exercises judgment. And this judgment is that he will forever be a wanderer. He will ever be a wanderer. His working the ground will come to very little. He will struggle in life. And in the end he goes to the land of Nod, not to the land of sleep. (laughs) Because Nod basically means the land of wandering. And he's going to have a life of wandering. A wilderness, a desert, a life that is marked out by, as though it was a desert. This is what happens to people who hold on to their sin. And don't come to God, life always ends up in a desert, unsatisfying, unproductive, useless. And no matter how we try to grasp onto significant things that people have done in their lives, at at their funerals, for those who have simply ignored God, their life is a wilderness and a desert. So anger has given way to murder but fourthly, and briefly, I just wanted to notice with you how sin propagates down the generations. Verse 17, we get this um, genealogy of Cain. And in passing, we see the expansion of various skills. Under Ada. Uh, we see keepers of livestock. Uh, we see the growth of the arts under Jubal. We see the development of metalworking. Uh uh, under Tubal, uh, tubal Cain, And these are interesting cultural developments that happened in the earliest days of humanity, uh, all entailing good things. You know, it's, it's good to keep flocks, it's good to have the arts, it's good to develop metalwork and technology. All of that's really important and useful. And it's a big picture, I think, of the advancement of the human culture. But what we need to realize is that culture is no savior. Culture is no savior of mankind. Many people believe that. If we can just uh, become more cultured, if we can just educate ourselves and civilize ourselves, then life will be so much better. People believe that today. It's a kind of drumbeat of our Western life. Educate and civilize through the arts and technology and everything will be okay. Well, it's no answer. Just look at a couple of things that happen as culture is developing. In verse 19, we see the first recorded breakdown of the God-appointed order of marriage between a man and a woman. Lamech takes two wives. He decides to jettison God's order. And then notice in verse 23, Lamech not only seems to engage in violent behaviour, But his song revels in the fact that he is violent and he will carry out judgments on those who oppose him. and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech says seventy-sevenfold. You come against me and then there'll be fold -fold, uh, retribution. That's what Lamech is saying. Pride, you see, pride, re- rejoicing in violence. Cain was angry and defensive against God, but Lamech is now proud and vindictive to all those who cross his path. What a mess! What a mess! So do you see how the the eating of a fruit in chapter three has opened the door to the worst excesses of the human heart? This is a pattern that's replicated at every uh, level of human society, whether as nations uh, or as individuals. No God consciousness, pride, arrogance, making sin a virtue and the subject of songs. And a civilised culture cannot cannot stop any of that. It should be no surprise, therefore, to realize that one of the most cultured societies in the Western world in the twentieth century gave rise to the most appalling regime of mass murder the world has ever seen. So this chapter gives a warning to each one of us that we are made for a relationship to God. Not a relationship constituted by religious activity, but expressed in heartfelt faith in God. And repentance for sin. Without this, there is only the wilderness of judgment. Well, our final point leaves us with an indication that even in this terrible situation uh, that mankind finds himself in, there are still signs of hope. And it comes through Eve. For here we see... hope of the believer in a sinful world. So I noted at the beginning that, uh, and at the end of the chapter, Eve invokes the name of the Lord. In verse 1, she recognises that even though the curse of death is upon her, uh, in the birth of her son, the Lord gives help. And is of course, a reminder that the way to the tree of life is now barred to her. Though that's true, God has not completely withdrawn from her, but is still active and present in her life. And, of course, it's a reminder to all people today that God continues to act in grace towards sinners, even to, even to sinners, in what is called common grace. God is patient with all men and women. And he continually pours out his goodness to men and women. And then we find at the end of the chapter, Seth is born to Adam and Eve. And once again, Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And the wording here is interesting. In verse 1, Eve says, God helped me to produce a man. But in verse 25, God has appointed me an offspring, literally a seed. And it's as though Eve, uh, through all this, remember the promise made to the serpent in 315, which she overheard. Do you remember? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a promise about one a seed who will come. Now Eve doesn't know when that seed is going to come, but here's another seed, Seth. And God seems to be at work in her life. You know, sometimes the the promises of God only begin to make sense when you've begun to see the true consequences of the alternative. Eve has seen her firstborn kill her secondborn. It must have broken her heart to see this appalling event come to pass in her lifetime. Especially when she remembered all that she had lost in the Garden of Eden. And now, having looked into the abyss, as it were, it seems that she has turned to God in a new way. And holding on to the promise given in Genesis 3.15, believing that only God can do something about the sin of the human heart. And though a, seed, a seed, uh, it's a seed that is going to come in, along into the future, as we can now see, it begins with Seth. And a line is established. And that line you can see in Luke chapter 3. The genealogy of Jesus goes all the way back to Seth. The seed has been planted. And Jesus Christ comes in the fullness of time. Who is without sin. And he would suffer and die for the sins of others. That they might know eternal life. But a glorious God. A God who continues to act in grace. In common grace, in showing his goodness to all men and women, but in special grace in giving us his Son, Jesus Christ, as a way back to life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the provision of a seed to save us. We confess to you the depths of our sin and our need. And we come to you today to repent of our sin and to put our trust again in Jesus Christ. And remember that He has done all for our salvation. In His name we pray. Amen.